I'm Alex from Florida. My name is Eli. I'm calling from Atlanta. My name is Isaac, and I was arrested for less than an eighth of an ounce of marijuana. Under a gram of marijuana. Less than three grams of marijuana. I had to go to the diversion program. Two years of probation. Participate in a series of drug tests. With a $500 fine. And community service hours. And I just thought it was a bit over the top and ridiculous since um, it's a plant. Uh, It's probably something that most people who know me would never think about me, but it's something that still haunts me. Laws have come a long way. They've got a long way to go. President Biden dropped a surprise on the nation, announcing he would pardon all simple marijuana possession convictions at the federal level. He also asked his administration to review marijuana's classification as a Schedule I drug, a category that includes heroin and LSD. Criminal records for marijuana possession have led to needless barriers to employment, to housing, to educational opportunities. And that's before you address the racial disparities around who suffers the consequences. It's a decision that echoes state policy trends. 31 states and the District of Columbia no longer prosecute or criminalize a person for possessing small amounts of cannabis. That's because cannabis arrests affect a lot of people, including many of you, like we just heard. But how quickly could it happen? And what does it mean if marijuana is rescheduled? How could it affect Americans? We'll answer those questions and get into so much more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember, you can join us for future conversations. Just download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Introducing Group Sessions, a new BetterHelp therapy offering currently in pilot testing. Therapist Joy Bergheimer shares how finding a community of people with shared experiences can help clients become more comfortable with therapy. For quite some time, we have not normalized mental wellness, and a lot of our families would shame you when you would say that you were feeling depressed or you're feeling overwhelmed. If you have been told over and over again that, Basically, you have a character flaw. If you're seeking therapy, that's going to be a reason that people don't want to go seek therapy. But actually being in group with other people and hearing them say a story that feels like it came right out of your book is huge. Like, oh, my gosh, this is not abnormal. Right. And this person is further along in their journey than me. So now I know that therapy is something that can shift things for me. So really seeing their peers has been a huge shift for people accepting therapy for themselves. To get 10% off your first month of online therapy, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. We're discussing President Biden's recent decision to pardon anyone with federal charges of simple marijuana possession. Joining us now is Dr. Raul Gupta. He's in charge of the Office of National Drug Control Policy. Dr. Gupta, welcome to 1A. Thank you for having me, Jen. Now, you said this move from the White House, quote, balances science with criminal justice reform efforts. Explain how. Yeah, I think it's really important for us to look at um, how many people of cross uh, have been uh, serving sentences and have been impacted for nonviolent drug crimes. And, you know, we know that while white and black and brown people use marijuana at similar rates, a disproportionate number of people that are arrested and convicted happen to be black and brown. In fact, if you look at it, it's four times as many. So it's really important to follow the science and at the same time ensure that our science and evidence filters into criminal justice as well. 
Well, let's talk about the science. You, you worked on marijuana research when you were a health commissioner in West Virginia. Historically, to what degree has national marijuana policy reflected what scientific and medical research says about the drug and its effects? Well, we know, and the president has as much said so, that uh, clearly there are medical potential uses of that. In fact, as uh, you pointed out, I uh, put together a medical cannabis program in state of West Virginia. Um, still, we need to make sure that we're working to uh, have a process through it, and that's exactly why last week President Biden made these announcements. You know, first, uh, the full and unconditional pardon for all prior federal offenses for simple possession of marijuana, uh, as well as making sure that we're urging all governors to follow his lead and issue those pardons for state marijuana possession offenses as well. And then asking the Secretary of Health and Human Services and the Attorney General to begin the administrative process of reviewing how marijuana is scheduled under federal law. Uh, It's really important to follow these steps as the president has outlined because marijuana is currently scheduled as a uh, schedule one drug and it's treated the same as you mentioned as heroin and LSD and it's important for us to take a look at that. Now this move is projected to affect roughly 6,500 people and some would say that means this move has limited impact and that includes our listener Paul. I spent 25 years in federal prison for possession of marijuana uh, with intent to distribute. Uh, There are currently people serving life sentences in federal prison right now for marijuana. The only ones who are going to get out under the latest thing from uh, Biden is people who are arrested for simple possession on federal property like uh, Yosemite, a national park, a military base, or in the D.C. area. Uh, I hope Biden goes the next step and lets all these people out. It's ridiculous that they're locked up. Dr. Gupta, what's your response to Paul? Well, first of all, Jen, we have to understand that uh, the president has a call for uh, pardoning uh, simple possession. Um, you know, what that does for thousands of people is it allows them to have simple activities as other Americans enjoy, like ability to get public assisted housing, being hired for jobs, getting, being able to get government loans or grants so they can have that same economic opportunity as every other. Uh, everybody else does across the nation. Being able to serve on a jury, being a very simple, being participating in the democracy, as well as being able to, you know, collect some assistance. Um, it actually allows people to function in a way that uh, we want to, um, uh, you know, help our economy move further. But, but, but it's Paul, also important. But, but mm-hmm. to Paul's point, I just want to make sure we answer his question. He's talking about people who are currently incarcerated for possession with the intent to distribute. And we've seen marijuana being commercialized across the country in, in various states. So why not take that additional step? Well, we know that state laws around possession vary. And that's why the president is asking for state governors to look at their laws and make sure that these actions that the president has initiated are also carried out across states. Because the fact of the matter is that while we're walking the talk as federal government, there's tens of thousands of Americans that are incarcerated in state and local prisons. And it's important that we provide them the same level of justice, the same level of fairness and equity that we're doing at a federal level. So say it's rescheduled to be a Schedule II drug. It would join drugs such as oxycodone, methadone, Ritalin, um, and Adderall. What would that mean for people on a practical level? 
Well, uh, you know, we don't want to get ahead of the FDA, HHS, as well as uh, the Attorney General's review at this point. So what I would suggest is that we let the science um, take its path and its course and make have that decision be made by the experts in that area. Now, marijuana's classification as a Schedule One drug means there are tight restrictions on research into its effects. So how will the DOJ and HHS be able to determine whether it should be rescheduled if there's not a lot of research into the drug? Well, the fact of the matter is uh, that there uh, is research and there continues to be research across states, um, you know, red states and blue. There's an overwhelming support of Americans for uh, making sure that there's plenty of research as well as evidence behind it. Uh, So the simple fact is that you follow the research that you have and you make decisions based on the science that is available to you. Um, and, And we do know that Today, we have more research available than we had just simply 10 years ago. So uh, it is time, as the president has asked for, to take a look at the scheduling of marijuana as a Schedule One drug. That's Dr. Raul Gupta. He's the director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy. Dr. Gupta, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jen. Now let's turn to local governments. Most possession crimes are charged at the state level, and some state governments have started pardoning people with low-level drug offenses. That includes Democratic Governor Tom Wolf of Pennsylvania. Last year, he launched the Marijuana Pardon Project. That's a one-time effort to pardon people with some nonviolent cannabis criminal convictions. When a producer, Chris Remington, spoke to him about the project yesterday, Wolf said that in 2015, it took roughly five years to get a pardon. That was what it was when I got here, and that was unacceptable. So we've now pared it down. I think we're averaging closer to two years, which is still unacceptable, but it's it's a lot better than it was. And it was basically, there were some, some just technical fixes in terms of moving these files forward and getting all the sign-offs and things like that before it got to my desk. Once it got to my desk, the pardons, I could take a look at the recommendations from the pardon board in a relatively short time, a few days. So the question was, why was it taking so long? So we've gotten it down from five years to two years, and, and we're still working to try to make that even better. And to clarify, you can be pardoned, but you still need to have your criminal record expunged, correct? Yes, this is the first step. A pardon would be the first step uh, in that expungement process. But yes, if all you have is a pardon, that can still be part of uh, the public record. Yeah, I want to touch on that expungement for a moment here in full transparency, Governor Wolf. I was arrested for minor marijuana possession in New Jersey. This was back in 2010. And for me, it took five years and a couple thousand dollars in legal fees to have my criminal record expunged. So I'm curious, how can those without the financial means that I was fortunate to have get their record cleared and, and start fresh? I don't think it costs anywhere close close to that. First of all, you don't need a law. I don't know what process you went through, but here it, it shouldn't. And, and I don't think it does. I think some people are not represented at all, except by, by themselves. This is not like a trial. There are five members of the, of the board, pardons and and they go before those members. Sometimes they don't even come at all. So I don't think those costs are, are in the system. It still takes too long. But the, the other thing is, I've been in politics now for eight years. Before that, I was in business. And we, like I think every other business back, when did you say you had your... This is back in 2010, yeah. Yeah. Back in, in and this is even before that, in the traditional thing that businesses did, if they saw anybody with any brush with the law, they would basically just discard the application. They wouldn't even give you a, a chance to come in for an interview. And 
I realized sometime around the turn of the 21st century that that was stupid. If your brush with the law involves something really serious, okay, I get that. But I mean, if it's like, sounds like yours, something that really is minor, then I'm not sure why we wouldn't give you a chance. So we started bringing people in, interviewing them, and, and lo and behold, they became some of the best employees I ever had. You know, people who have had a brush with the law sometimes actually, I don't know how you feel, but but sometimes feel they, they really have a point to make and, and, and they want to prove that, that they're actually, you know, better than maybe the average employee. So I was very pleased with this. And so I I brought that perspective to this job and said, you know, that we, we should do everything we can so that, that, you know, the simple possession of something like marijuana should not be a life sentence that, that basically condemns you not to have a, a decent life and a decent set of opportunities. So from your perspective, the expungement issue is less about the cost barriers, but more so how it could impact individuals' abilities to get jobs later on. And that's sort of where the bigger concern is. Yeah, I hear you. There are two things. It's a, it's a justice concern. I, I mean, if I believe, as I do, that marijuana, recreational marijuana for, for adults ought to be legalized, then it's inconsistent seems to me for me to believe that they somebody who was charged and convicted of something like that ought to have that go with them for the rest of their lives and pay the penalty. But it's also something that paying the penalty for something that, that w- was truly minor, even if if I didn't believe it was it should be legal, seems to me to be a, a real burden on not only on the, the individual who bears that burden, but on the rest of us taxpayers. There, there's one less person who's going to be a productive member of our economy, get a job, start a family, participate in the community, work for public national radio, <laughs> NP, national public, sorry. National, national public radio, yeah. National public radio. So, um, you know, I, I, I think it's it's a practical thing as well as, as just a, a trying to be fair and consistent. And you've talked a bit about adult recreational use. You see New Jersey has that market in place. New York is moving towards that as well. What do you see as the primary obstacles? And is this something we could see on the Pennsylvania ballot in 2023 and 2024? You mean as a referendum? Yeah, yeah, constitutional referendum. I I suspect that that this is something that the legislature should be able to pass. Hmm. I, I don't really know exactly what the hurdle is. Sometimes things just take a long time in, in the Well, legislature. peel it back a little bit. Talk to me about the conversations that you've had with opponents in the legislature to recreational marijuana use and the arguments that they are giving to you, whether it be that it's a gateway drug, whether that it be sort of cost attacks. What are the arguments that you are hearing from folks and what does that pressure look like? Uh, the only argument I've heard is that some people feel it is a gateway drug. They don't feel that scotch is or champagne, for example, but Marijuana evidently is. Uh, I've also heard that that the new types of marijuana are more potent and and therefore in some cases can be a problem. I've also heard that depending on how you do it, if it's in candy form, it could be something that would be very attractive to kids. Now these are all the same arguments that people make have made in the past about alcohol and about nicotine and all the other things that are legal, but but those are the arguments. On the other hand, uh, I've heard, I think, more people come up to me and say, you know, I, I actually believe this, but I, I think I, I need to not uh, go public with that. Sort of, it's sort of a, a, a undercover kind of support for it. Mm, interesting. And you are, of course, term limited. You are not up for re-election. What, what would you urge future governors when it comes to marijuana and restorative justice in the state? 
legalize it and go back retroactively and make sure anybody who was who suffered any penalty because of possession, make that retroactive, go back and say, you know, you're clear. That was Democratic Governor Tom Wolf of Pennsylvania speaking to 1A's Chris Remington. Now let's bring in a couple of new voices. Sophie Quinton is a staff writer with Pluribus News. That's a national outlet focusing on state-level policy. Sophie, welcome to 1A. Thanks for having me, Jen. Also with us is Bo Kilmer. He's the director of the Rand Drug Policy Research Center. Bo, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jen. So let's take a big step back, Bo. We've been talking about simple possession and low-level drug offenses, but what does that mean? What offenses qualify? So when we talk about simple possession, we're usually referring to an arrest for someone who is possessing small amounts of cannabis for personal use without the intent to sell or give it to anyone else. Now, I was going through some data from the U.S. Sentencing Commission. Um, this is It's about 10 years old. Uh, but they were looking at those individuals who had been federally arrested uh, for simple cannabis possession, not at the U.S.-Mexico border. So we're talking about the small num- very small number of people who are arrested, say, in a national park or on a military base. And they found that the median quantity of cannabis uh, involved in those offenses was about five grams. You know, which could be between five to 15 joints, you know, depending on how they roll them. But, you know, and, and this is something that uh, Director Gupta made clear, that uh, almost all people convicted of cannabis possession are not charged at the federal level. You know, I think for 2017, uh, there were less than 100 people. You know, more than 99% of those arrests happen at the state and local level. And one of the things the president did do is urge, um, you know, state governors uh, to take action and follow his lead. Sylvie, we just heard from Pennsylvania's governor about their efforts to pardon low-level drug offenses, but what are other states doing in this area? You know, this is something that states, particularly states with Democratic governors, have been working on for quite a few years now. Um, We've seen other governors like Colorado Governor Jared Polis, Nevada Governor Steve Sisolak announce um, moves to pardon folks with, again, those sort of simple minor possession crimes um, on their records. But I think what's perhaps even more interesting is that increasingly states... um, State legislatures are passing laws or, uh, you know, sort of that are either just sort of rolling this whole idea into their legalization program in the first place or kind of tacking on an effort to expunge and totally wipe clear people's criminal records um, of these minor possession crimes We see sort of a number of states have done that recently, New York, New Jersey, um, states like New Mexico, you know, as they're thinking about legalization through a legislative process, lawmakers are increasingly thinking, okay, well, we're going to, you know, create this new legal market for adult use of marijuana. Can we also at the same time work in a provision so that people's, you know, some of their minor cannabis convictions, minor marijuana convictions, I should say, are just wiped off their records automatically. Sophie, there are two political issues at play here. There's the legalization piece, and then there's the pardoning or expungement piece. How popular are both efforts with voters? That's a great question, Jen. I can tell you that certainly when it comes to marijuana legalization, we've seen, you know, polls have shown support sort of growing almost every time this question is asked. Um, We've seen, I think I was just looking at this yesterday, there was a a recent um, Pew Research Center poll that found that the majority of adults in the US say that marijuana use should be legal in some way. That's 60% of adults saying marijuana should be legal for both medical and recreational use. And then 
an additional um, chunk of um, respondents saying medical use only. In terms of the criminal justice piece, you know, I haven't looked at the data for that particularly closely. Bo might have some additional thoughts on that. But I can tell you that this idea that sort of legalization and, and criminal justice reform should go hand in hand is becoming an increasingly popular idea um, among lawmakers and governors on the left. I mean, for a lot of Democrats and people who identify as progressive lawmakers, um, those two things have both become a very high priority. We're discussing marijuana law in the U.S. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Let's get back to our exploration of marijuana policy in America with these messages from some of you. Hello, my name is Aki McGill. I'm a medical doctor practicing in addiction medicine and psychiatry for 30 years. The horror of uh, reefer madness has been the incarceration of all these young people. While it's been shown that the deleterious effects of marijuana are minuscules compared to alcohol. Um, I, for one, will be celebrating the end of uh, criminalization of marijuana possession. Now, Sophie, last week, President Biden announced an expedited review of how marijuana is scheduled under federal law, but there's currently a catch-22 surrounding marijuana and research, and it's exacerbated by its current classification as a Schedule I drug. Are there any pathways to ease research into the schedule of drugs? You know, that's a great question, Jen. I think, you know, the cannabis law experts I've spoken to really say that you know, as you said, there's a catch-22 in that because marijuana is classified as Schedule One, which is sort of the most dangerous category of drug, it's very hard to do research. But by the same token, you kind of need that research to move it to kind of a, a less dangerous schedule um, and kind of make research more possible. So I think there's, you know, certainly at the federal level, I'm not totally sure how to get around that barrier. I mean, I do know that you know, at the state level, there, you know, there's there are sort of efforts to research this, particularly from a medical standpoint. And we also see studies that are happening overseas in, in countries that have kind of different um, approaches to, to marijuana policy. So some of that research could maybe inform um, the debate here in the U.S. Mm. Andrea writes, we need Biden to take marijuana off schedule one. There's literally no excuse to keep it there when opiates are scheduled lower and kill people. And Renee tweets, why is no one talking about how marijuana became classified as a Schedule One drug? The racism, the racism behind this classification is massive. Bo, can you explain how marijuana ended up scheduled as a Schedule One drug? Cannabis was prohibited, you know, almost a hundred years ago, and you know it started at the state level, and then it happened, you know, over time. Um, laws were passed at the federal level, which essentially prohibited it, and then you know when they uh, um, we're creating the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. You know, they created these five different schedules. And as I mentioned earlier, if a particular drug uh, has a potential for abuse, and let me be clear, abuse is a term that we don't tend to use it, um, anymore because it's stigmatizing. But if you talk about the legislation, that's the word that they use. Well, if a, a substance has a potential for abuse and it has no recognized medical value, it automatically goes into Schedule One. So that's how it ended up there. 
Sophie, you spoke to a representative of the National Cannabis Industry Association for a recent piece, and he told you, quote, I would do everything in my power to oppose Schedule 2. Why is this industry group so against cannabis being shifted to a Schedule 2 drug classification? I think their their point is basically that Schedule 2 doesn't really do a whole lot for the industry as it exists today. I mean, if cannabis is moved to an even lower classification, so Schedule 3 or below, it would at least deal with, I mean, it would remove two kind of big problems that the industry is facing. One is they can't, because of the scheduling, um, take business tax deductions when they file their taxes, which is a huge problem in terms of profitability. I mean, it would really help these companies out if they had that um, that taxability. And they could do that if um, cannab- if marijuana was rescheduled to, to Schedule 3 or lower. It also might kind of ease up some of the challenges the industry's had, opening bank accounts, sort of accessing financial services. All of that has been a real challenge because of this federal scheduling. But Schedule 2, it doesn't really address those financial pieces because that's, I mean, that's still a pretty strict um, scheduling level. And it also, I mean, I think the industry is would ideally like uh, marijuana to be descheduled completely because under any other type of scheduling, you know, as one of your callers pointed out, sort of lower scheduled drugs include opiates. They're often things that you can only get with a prescription, that doctors can only, you know, that you're only going to get in the hospital legally. Um, So a lower scheduling level basically means that under federal law, marijuana kind of becomes like a prescription drug. So it becomes something that, you know, more medical research can happen on. Big pharma can kind of get in there and and start developing and selling drugs that have marijuana as an, an active ingredient in a new way. But for the industry that exists today, where, you know, people are, you know, states are kind of regulating this, like alcohol, adults can just buy a range of products and use them for recreational purposes. I mean, Schedule 2 doesn't really do very much for the industry as it currently exists. But briefly, if cannabis is reclassified as a Schedule 2 drug or a Schedule 3 drug, how would that affect the way people are currently penalized for possession? Um, it's hard to predict, but you know, to the extent that most of the action is happening at the state and local level, you know, a change at the federal level probably wouldn't make much of a difference unless it kind of uh, you know kind of provided political cover to make it easier uh, for the states to kind of take action uh, with respect to cannabis. Um, I mean, I think the bigger impact would be if federal um, if the federal government legalized cannabis or descheduled it um, and what a lot and, and this really a lot of it all comes down to what happens to the prices mm. right we already see in states that have legalized the prices have really started to plummet you know in Oregon the price for a gram of flour dropped from over ten dollars to about four dollars in Michigan just over the course of a year, you saw that the uh, price for an ounce uh, dropped uh, about 40%. And realize we're having all these, uh, these price declines are happening, but it's still prohibited at the federal level. If, it w- if, if cannabis was legalized at the federal level and it was no longer illegal to move cannabis across state lines, 
you could see the industry consolidate very quickly. You know, with some of my colleagues at Rand, we've estimated that you can produce all of the cannabis that's consumed in the United States on a few dozen industrial-sized farms. That's it. And if you, you know, and, and, and if companies like Amazon get involved or if it starts being, st- you know, sold in uh, supermarkets, um, that's really going to put downward pressure on the price. And, uh, and, and it's going to make it harder for your small businesses and some of your equity applicants um, to, uh, uh, to succeed. You know, many will go out of business. And this has important implications when we talk about uh, racial equity. Um, you know, because some places, you know, they're giving out these licensing preferences. Um, but, uh, you know, if you have the federal legalization, it'll be hard for them to compete. But also in terms of what happens to tax revenues. You know, there are some places that are using their cannabis tax revenues um, to address racial inequities. Uh, so, for example, Evanston, Illinois, is using some of their uh, cannabis taxes uh, for slavery reparations. And, you know, in a lot of places, you know, the tax is a function of the price. Well, if the price goes down, well, so will your tax revenue unless you see a big increase uh, in consumption. And so with federal legalization, if it pushes those prices down, and if you're not taxing it the right way, then there's going to be less revenue coming in. And, you know, and this isn't an idle concern. You know, Colorado, which passed legalization in 2012, if the trends continue, 2022 will be the first year they see a decline in tax revenues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when we talk about, um, especially in terms of using legalization as a way to kind of help build wealth or uh, invest in BIPOC communities, we've got to pay really close attention to what happens to the price and, uh, and, 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 and how federal policy would influence that. Well, we'll keep an eye on this as it moves forward. We've been talking to Sophie Quinton. She's a staff writer with Pluribus News. That's a national outlet delving into state-level political policy. Sophie, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks so much for having me. And Bo Kilmer, head of the Rand Drug Policy Research Center. Bo, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Jen. Today's producers were Paige Osborne, Maya Garg, and Michelle Harvin, with help from Chris Remington and Arfi Getty. This program comes to you from WAMU part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk more soon. This is 1A.